0: Season 2, Episode 64 A Deal with the Devil. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we start today, a small piece of personal news. As members of the mailing list or followers of the podcast on Twitter might know, I've submitted my PhD thesis for examination. It's not the end of the process, but it is now out of my hands for at least a couple of months before I have to defend it in a viva. I've been writing it for the whole time I've made packs, and so this is all to say thank you to everyone who's listened to the show over the years. Whether you've listened since the start, or if this is your first episode, whether you've ever been a patron or not, this podcast has helped keep me sane and motivated not to mention keeping the lights on and tea bags in the kitchen. It might have taken less time to write the thing if I wasn't also making this podcast, but I wouldn't make that trade. Anyway. Today, we return to Scotland, which has sat out of the narrative for a few episodes now, ever since the Covenant has sold Charles I back to his rebellious English subjects. Scotland had withdrawn its army back across the border, and had watched the struggle at Westminster with wary eyes. The Scottish Covenanters had backed Parliament in the Civil War in order to secure Scotland's Kirk, its Calvinist Presbyterian Church, against the interference of their southern neighbour. But now, now it looked like they'd replaced one interfering government, that of Charles I, with another, one dominated by the independence of the new model army. Even if there was no government interference from the south, and what were the chances of that? The breakdown of religious order would mean spiritual contamination would surely spread across the border. When the Earl of Leven led his army back across the border in February 1647, the question on everyone's mind in Edinburgh was much the same as it was in London – what do we do with the army? Now, this was not the unrivalled powerhouse of military might which had humbled the king in both bishops' wars and then intervened in England just a few years earlier attrition, casualties, desertions, and other ordinary losses which grind down a campaigning army had taken their toll. The year before, shortly before Charles had arrived on Leven's doorstep, the muster of the Army of the Covenant showed a force of just over 4,000 cavalry, and only 2,800 infantry. This wasn't the full extent of Covenant and military might, of course. There were garrisons all over Northern England and throughout Scotland, as well as a reduced force still fighting in Ireland, but it was a substantial drop in numbers. Worse, from a strategic perspective, the Army of the Covenant was no longer facing the ragtag militias of an England which hadn't seen full-scale warfare in generations. Now, their most likely opponent was the New Model Army, a veteran and professional force which had the advantage of numbers even before you get to questions of morale and discipline. Whether they thought another intervention in England was likely or even desirable, or whether they feared an invasion from the south, the politicians in Edinburgh had to decide what they were going to do with Scotland's army. But this decision was not easy to make. Scottish politics were just as divided as the other two kingdoms, with two factions vying for influence. These centred around their leaders. Archibald Campbell, the Marquess of Argyll and long-time Covenanter leader, effectively led what has been termed the Radicals, hardline Covenanters allied with the Kirk. As such, his faction is more commonly referred to as the Kirk Party, but like all faction names in this period, this is mostly a convenience. These hardline Kirk ministers, and the politicians who supported them, had demanded that Charles swear to the Covenant first before they accept any deal with him, and they had stuck to this red line in the months after they sold him back to the English, and it would dominate their thinking going forward. Opposing Argyle was another name familiar to us, James Hamilton, Duke of Hamilton, who I think we last saw being thrown into Pendennis Castle in Cornwall by the King for failing to stop the Scots from invading. He's since been transferred around England, eventually being freed by parliamentary troops, sworn to the Covenant, and then returned to his native kingdom with his monarch's blessing. On the way, he'd played his part in trying to convince Charles to come to an agreement with the Covenanters, but of course had had no luck. Hamilton led a group of nobles and gentry who Ian Gentles terms Conservatives and Crypto-Royalists. These were all, with very few exceptions, Covenanters. They'd sworn to the Covenant, and many of them had been supporters of Argyle, but changing times saw many begin to lean towards the moderate royalism of Hamilton. They still remained Covenanters, but they were willing to work with the King if it secured Presbyterianism in Scotland. There were many points of agreement between Argyle and Hamilton's factions. Obviously, both men were the elite of the elite, and neither wanted to see the beloved Stuart monarchy fall, though their fondness for the person of Charles Stuart only went so far. Both factions agreed on protecting the Presbyterian Church, and both saw the power of independence in England as a direct threat to this. But they differed greatly on what to do about it. Hamilton wanted to see the Scots come to the aid of their imprisoned sovereign, the latest monarch of the proud Scottish Stuart dynasty, even if that meant that England's church was not as reformed as the Kirk. Argyle agreed that English independence were a serious threat to Scottish Presbyterianism, but he and his faction viewed the king in a similar light. And you can't really blame Argyle for questioning Charles's sincerity on this issue. How many times had they negotiated with him, only to find that he was playing both sides? Or come to terms? Only to find that he had no intention of keeping to them. The amount of times the king had played for time, gone back on his word, tried to play one side off against the other, I can't blame contemporaries for not trusting him. Only if the king swore a solemn oath to Almighty God and took the covenant would Argyle and the Kirk faction trust him to keep to any agreement. Argyle was not about to risk the solemn league and covenant between Scotland and the English Parliament. On the off chance that this time the king was telling the truth. And so this leads us to the army. Because both Argyle and Hamilton struggled over the fate of the Army of the Covenant. Hamilton saw that the main thing which Scotland could offer the king was its army. So naturally, he wanted it maintained and increased to better face off against the new model army if it came to that. In public, Hamilton justified this stance by saying that Scotland should maintain its army to ensure the complete reformation of the English church. Argyll viewed the army warily. He was concerned about increasing dissent within Scotland and wanted the army to be purged. Better a smaller, more reliable force than a larger one which might turn against the covenant. To this end, he advocated for spending cuts Armies are expensive. And this argument won over the Scottish Parliament, who were looking at the ever-growing cost of maintaining it, and feeling a certain lightness in their pockets. So, when the army returned to Scotland in February 1647, in a conscious imitation of their southern neighbours, the army of the Covenant was remodelled. The army was condensed into smaller numbers of regiments, to bring them closer to full strength. The cavalry and dragoons were to function as a sort of mounted police, and consisted of fifteen troops of cavalry and three of dragoons. The infantry was reduced to only seven regiments of around eight hundred men each. We don't need to get into who commands which regiments, but it's worth knowing that the Marquis of Argyll, Archibald Campbell, and his kinsman, Colonel James Campbell, both took command of two regiments of Highlanders. The Earl of Leven, Alexander Leslie, was effectively sidelined for the time being and effective command of the new model army of the Covenant was granted to David Leslie, a more reliable Argyle ally. Other unreliable officers were frozen out of the new modelling. Anyone Argyle, Leslie, or their faction, suspected to be Royalists or Moderates, were excluded. The reform of the army was one of the last major pieces of business for the Scottish Parliament, and it dissolved for the year, with plans to hold fresh elections in February 1648. In the meantime, Scotland would be governed by the new 72-man Committee of Estates. As it turns out, Hamilton would hold a slight majority on this body, and his coalition began to assert its own influence. Before that could have an effect, Argyll made good use out of his new army. He finally got around to finishing off the Marquess of Huntley, who, if you remember, had refused to stand down at the same time as the Marquess of Montrose, but he achieved basically nothing, and only lasted as long as he did, because he was so far away, and essentially, the Covenanters has had better things to do. Well, not anymore. Lieutenant General Leslie marched north, captured any Royalist castles still holding out, mercilessly executed any Irish soldier he found there, and took Huntley prisoner. Aberdeenshire and the North was finally pacified after gallons of blood had been spilled. Then, Argyle dispatched his new attack dog into the Western Highlands to clean out the Campbell lands of any remaining rebels, royalists, or Irishmen. This was another mopping-up exercise. Leslie quickly scattered any substantial resistance and forced Alistair McCollar and his forces to flee the mainland, to the Isle of Isla. Anyone left behind faced the Covenant of Wrath. Around 300 men were massacred after surrendering Donavity Castle, after Leslie gave his men three reign. After that, the islands were cleared. When Leslie landed at Isla, he found that McCollar had stayed one step ahead of his pursuers. He'd returned to Ireland, where, as we saw in 262, he met his inglorious end at Nochnanus. Leslie settled for McCollar's father, Col. Col Kytak left his besieged castle of Dunveg to negotiate, and was arrested. His garrison was offered generous terms, and for once Leslie actually kept to them. The 176 soldiers, which included Irishmen who would normally have faced summary execution, were allowed to leave. Cole, on the other hand, McCollar's dad, was hanged as a rebel. By October 1647, just a few short months after being remodelled, the army of the Covenant had effectively pacified the whole kingdom. This had not been pleasant. On top of the violence I've briefly covered, there were countless smaller acts of bloodshed against soldiers and civilians. Livestock and crops were destroyed across the kingdom, anything not nailed down was taken by the soldiers, and generally we see a significant difference between Leslie and his elder kinsmen. Leaven's emphasis on discipline had kept his army relatively, by early modern standards, well behaved. Leslie's army was an entirely different beast's. It has to be said that Leslie was playing the hand he'd been dealt. His army was mostly conscripted, and morale was non-existent. They were constantly underpaid, or unpaid, and often borderline mutinous. At one point, the army refused to leave Dunblane, because they had not been paid. And in the end, they only left because plague was ripping through their ranks, and anywhere was better than plague-ridden Dunblane. But Leslie's style of leadership didn't prioritise good behaviour. Steve Murdoch and Alexia Groschon note that Leslie's, quote, less rigorous grip on discipline, and his army's, quote, vindictive killing was anathema to Leaven, end quote. But it suited Argyle's purposes. On top of, and made worse by the deliberate actions of the army, was plague. Bubonic plague followed the army wherever it went. By the end of the army's campaign, after years of Civil war, foreign intervention, high taxes, and inter-clan rivalry, Scotland was bankrupt, and in a quote, state of utter physical and moral exhaustion. While Leslie marched around putting down sedition, Argyll and Hamilton wrestled for control. Not literally, Scottish politics hadn't got that bad, but in the less entertaining contest over influence. Like I mentioned, Hamilton was increasingly influential over the Committee of Estates. Argyll's counter to the Hamilton-leaning estates was the Church, through the General Assembly of the Kirk, and when that wasn't in session, the spiritual counterpart to the Committee of Estates, the Commission of the Kirk. The Kirk firmly backed Argyll, and through their place in society, they were a powerful ally indeed. The Scots, in what is almost a national tradition, then and now, watched the political events south of the border with alarm, the ascendancy of the political Presbyterian faction in Westminster quickly crumbled, and the army, and its religious and political radicals, began to assert itself. As we saw, political Presbyterians attempted to sway their Scottish allies to be a counterweight to the new model army, but the Covenanters were sceptical. They'd been brushed off by the English Presbyterians when their fortunes were high, and the reforms of the Assembly of Divines were far from satisfactory, as far as the Scots were concerned. What would another intervention in England actually achieve? As events developed, debate raged on. With their king in figurative chains, their prince in exile, and England seemingly falling into anarchy, the interventionist position of Hamilton looked more and more worthwhile. A Scottish noble, the Earl of Dunfermline, was sent to meet the Queen in Paris, and he returned with a bold proposal. The Prince of Wales, the future Charles II, would come to Scotland to lead their army south and restore his father. Well, this didn't really appeal to anyone. Argyle, as we've said, had no interest in springing the king without his commitment to the true religion. You might think that Hamilton would have thrown his full weight behind the idea, but he didn't, because the army that would march south to restore the king was under Argyle's control. His man, Leslie, commanded it, and if they succeeded in defeating the new model army and took possession of the king, they'd try and enforce their vision of a Presbyterian union. Hamilton didn't agree with that vision, and neither did the king. Hamilton and Argyll now reversed positions on the army. Now it was Argyll insisting that the army had to remain mustered while events in England were so uncertain, Which wasn't wrong, per se, but it was also because the army was now politically reliable for the Kirk faction. Hamilton now argued for the disbanding of the army for reasons of cost, but in actuality, for the exact reasons Argyle wanted to keep it political reliability. If the army of Leslie was dissolved, a new one would have to be recruited for an intervention in England, and Hamilton was now better positioned to influence the selection of its officers. The proposal went nowhere. At this point, the king was far more interested in what the new model army could do for him anyway. This is before he rejected the heads of proposals. When he did reject them, as we saw in episode 261, who was by the king's side but the Earl of Lauderdale? Lauderdale had been the one who had sent Dunfermline to negotiate with the queen in Paris, and he urged his king not to give in to the new model army. He had loyal subjects in Scotland who would fight to see him restored to the throne. All he had to do was compromise on religion. This, combined with his hopes for an Irish intervention and his belief that the New Model Army's position was crumbling after the riots in London, meant that the King turned down the heads of proposals, the last realistic chance for an agreement he could live with. And then, as we saw in that same episode, the army marched on London... ...and purged its Presbyterian enemies from Parliament without a fight. The army's position had never been stronger, and Charles had just spat in its face. Worse, the army was beginning to talk about very radical and dangerous ideas, and the king was chief among their complaints. But the silver lining for the king is that as his position in England got worse, sympathy for him grew in Scotland... Against the prospect of the complete domination of England by a powerful army led by independent schismatics, the Covenanters decided to make a deal with the Devil. As we finished last time, we saw Charles escape from Hampton Court Palace. Despite fears that he was going to run north to Scotland, or to London to seize the political initiative, or even to cross the Channel to France or the Netherlands, he did none of these things. Instead, as we saw, he ended up in the Isle of Wight, in the custody of the parliamentarian governor, Colonel Robert Hammond. It is a bit of an odd decision. Ian Gentles bases this decision on the incompetence of his advisers, But whatever his reasons, Charles fled mainland Britain just as Fairfax and Cromwell restored order over the army. The King's escape was an ominous headache for the Grandees, but it came with a silver lining. Suspicions over his intentions created, or perhaps revived, a common enemy for the army to close ranks against. The King was at it again. Charles had not been idle during his imprisonment, And we see him start to rebuild the Royalist coalition even while under army guard. Besides the Scottish commissioners, who we'll speak about shortly, we need to welcome back the Marquis of Ormond. After surrendering Dublin to Parliament instead of the Irish Confederates, he sailed to England, which he reached in July 1647. He split his and his family's time between London, where they enjoyed the city and even had portraits painted, and their estate in Gloucestershire, with regular visits to the King. At Hampton Court Palace. It's these visits which interest us, because at these meetings Charles and Ormond discussed the future. Ormond convinced the King that he could mount a royalist campaign in Ireland by leading a combined force of dissenting parliamentarians, Lord Inchiquin chiefly among them, and the peace faction within the Confederacy, also known as the Ormondists. However, this could only work alongside a Scottish intervention. Backed by English uprisings. Now, if that sounds like a lot of moving parts which have to not only agree to work together, but also coordinate their actions over a wide distance, well, you get a gold star. But Charles had long believed in his Celtic miracle, and it did seem like the pieces were finally falling into place. With Ormond briefed on what his king expected of him, Charles met with the Scottish commissioners and urged them to meet with Ormond themselves, which they did in a secret meeting outside London. By this point, the army grandees and Parliament had become suspicious about the purpose behind Ormond's meetings with the King, and by the end of 1647 the Marquis had been banned from Charles' presence. But Ormond was soon on the move to France, where he worked with other exiled royalists and wrote to potential allies in the Three Kingdoms on to those Scottish commissioners who the king was speaking with. These were the Lords Lanark, brother to Hamilton, Lauderdale, and Loudon. The three L's were the most sympathetic to the king's position, and in their secret talks they had offered many compromises to the king, just to try and get him to agree to a deal. But the one thing they just could not sacrifice was, unfortunately, the same as the king. Religion. If Charles was able to accept Presbyterianism and the Covenant, he would have Scotland behind him. Everything else was secondary. Securing the Kirk was the only reason the Scots had even got involved in the English Civil War. It the only reason the Bishops' Wars had even kicked off. Everyone they dealt with in London, from the King, to Parliament, to the New Model Army, even to their supposed co-religionists in the political Presbyterians, had either rejected the Scottish religious settlement outright, or watered it down like a dram with too much ice. If they could secure the future of the Kirk from interference from the king and contamination from his English subjects, everything else could be agreed. For Charles, religion was no less sincere a commitment. The commissioners were demanding that he give up what he saw as his responsibility to God he continually refused the office of the Scots, even when a compromise on religion was his best and most immediate chance to restore himself in England. And in this defence of his genuine and sincerely held beliefs, Charles would not buckle. The negotiations carried on, with the Scots offering more and more concessions on religion, until a draft of an agreement had been set down on the 15th of December. There was still unease among the commissioners. Especially Loudon worried that the compromises they had made would not be accepted back home, especially by the Kirk. But then, the English Parliament intervened by passing the four bills. Frustrated by the king's continuing bad faith dealing and his clear conspiring with foreign enemies, the Scots and the Irish, the four bills were an exercise in brinkmanship. The first gave Parliament permanent control over the military. For twenty years, Parliament would have complete control over the armed forces of the kingdom, and after that the monarch would need the consent of both houses to use them. The king would get his armies back if and when Parliament decided he or his heirs deserved them. The second revoked all Charles's declarations against Parliament. The third cancelled all the honours he had made in recent years. And the fourth was to secure Parliament's safety. By giving it the right to convene wherever it so desired. If London was not safe for it to meet, then it could meet anywhere else on its own authority. These were passed by Parliament and delivered to the King at Carisbrooke Castle. If he agreed to these, Charles would be invited back to London to settle any remaining points, and peace would finally be secured. If he didn't, well, then Parliament and the army would know that he had something else in mind. Charles received the four bills on Christmas Eve, and saw in them an opportunity. With the draft engagement ready, he needed to push the commissioners over the edge and force them to commit to him. When the king next met with the commissioners, he suggested that, hmm, these four bills don't seem that bad. Maybe I'll accept them. Maybe i don't need the scottish army after all well this would not do for the scots the four bills were completely unacceptable they made no mention of closer ties between england and scotland they answered none of the existential worries that a powerful england would enforce its will on scotland and it said nothing about religion whether they were convinced by charles's suggestion that he might actually accept these severe terms or not the chance even the slim one, that Charles would accept the four bills and, at a stroke of a pen, destroy any leverage the Scots held, could not be allowed. The engagement was signed. So what were the terms of this engagement? Well, firstly, the continuation of the Presbyterian system, which had already been implemented by the Westminster Assembly of Divines and by Act of Parliament. For at least three more years, the King was not to meddle with the Church, and then a permanent settlement would be agreed by the Assembly. Under the terms of the engagement, independency and sectarians would be suppressed by the State. The Solemn League and Covenant would be confirmed by the English Parliament, but neither Charles nor any of his subjects would be forced to swear to it. Further, All Acts of Parliament of Scotland since 1644 would be ratified, and Scots would have a much greater say in the Government of England. In the negotiations for any foreign treaties, an equal number of Scots would be included as there were English negotiators, and a, quote, considerable and competent number of Scotsmen, end quote, would sit on his English Privy Council, with the same concession for English on the Scottish Privy Council with the eventual goal being a closer union between the crowns. This was, like previous Covenanter deals with the king, effectively defensive in nature. Imposing Presbyterianism, temporarily, though clearly expected to be made permanent, and stamping out independent sects in England would secure the Scottish Kirk against any future English contamination, official or otherwise. And securing a voice in English affairs not to mention any eventual union, would hopefully keep Scotland's much larger, more populated, and wealthier neighbour from acting against Scotland's interests in more worldly affairs. If the English Parliament did not agree to these terms, which I don't think anyone really expected them to, a Scottish army would march into England, defeat the new model army, rescue the king from the custody of his enemies, and bring him to London where he could finally agree a settlement with the English Parliament, with its Presbyterian members restored, its most strident independent MPs arrested, and those caught in the middle freed from the threat of the new model army. Of course, there would then be the threat of the Scottish army, but never mind. Some of this was printed in a declaration published by the Parliament of Scotland in August 1648, which was partly an attempt to justify the Scottish invasion, which will have already started by that point. Independents were condemned for, quote, they drive on for a toleration of all sorts of heresies and heretical opinions, which they term liberty of conscience, end quote. The Declaration, quote, humbly petitioned the English Parliament to concede on these points, as well as disbanding the New Model Army after paying them. Restoring the eleven members who had been impeached by the army, or at least replacing them with legally elected stand ins while the charges were investigated, and only allowing those who had sworn to the solemn league and covenant to sit in Parliament. After making this humble petition, the Declaration explains, or else, quote, else we shall be enforced speedily, according to our covenant, to make such provisions of armies and other military forces as may secure our religion. Our King, Kingdom, and Parliament. End quote. This was all, of course, justified as rescuing and vindicating our wronged brethren, delivering them out of the jaws of destruction, and the establishing of truth and peace in these three kingdoms. End quote. When the engagement treaty was signed on Boxing Day by Charles and Lords Loudon, Lanark, and Lauderdale, it was wrapped in lead and secretly buried in the grounds of Carisbrook Castle to keep it safe. The following day, Charles formally rejected the four bills and dismissed Parliament's agents from his presence. Though the engagement was a secret, everyone in the know now knew that a storm was coming. The three L's would hurry to inform the Committee of Estates of the terms and what course they had committed Scotland to. In Paris, Ormond wrote to prospective allies in Ireland. Lord Inchiquin would be visited by an agent of Ormond to sound out his intentions and caught the peace faction of the Confederacy's Supreme Council. And of course, in England, Parliament and the New Model Army prepared for war. A vote of no addresses, forbidding unauthorised negotiations with the King on pain of death, was quickly voted through the House of Commons. When the House of Lords objected, on the grounds that this indirectly interfered with their authority, parliamentary authority, the Army Council declared that they favoured the vote, the House of Commons requested military support to suppress a tax riot, and with two regiments of the army surrounding Westminster, the vote passed the Lords. When the Scottish members of the Committee for Both Kingdoms objected to the vote of no addresses, and with suspicions rife that something had been agreed between the King and the Scots, Parliament dissolved the Committee for Both Kingdoms, and effectively terminated the alliance between the two parliaments, setting the stage for another war but though the Scots would prepare an invasion, the Second English Civil War would not start on Hamilton's schedule. Thank you to my House of Lords, including the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, Sue Bremner, the Duchess of Wellington, Brandon Stansbury, the Marquis of Montague, and John Watson, Earl of Hillary, as well as new members, Christopher Hammond, Earl of Bedford. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.